going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A very, very happy Tuesday. Yeah, recalibrate yourself, figure out what day it really is. I know for me, fantastic weekend. It was super busy, though, and I don't know how it turned on a whim like it did, but it all started the Strong Slow Pitch Tournament in Airdrie, second annual from what I understand. Fantastic time there. Other than Mother Nature deciding, hey, everybody should play ball in the rain and kind of almost snow and a little bit of hail mixed in, particularly during the latter half of the day, which it was weird having to play in warmer temperatures in the morning than it felt like by the afternoon. Or maybe it was just because we got a little bit wet and then it starts getting, you know, the wind starts ripping through you. So there was that. And then Monday, it's nice and warm out. So Aaron and I said, hey, let's catch up on a few things. We haven't, you know, vacuumed the house or cleaned the house or cut the grass or anything like that. Before you know it, you've done about 15 things. And I started tapping out at about three o'clock in the afternoon going, I need a nap. I need a three-day weekend to make up for my three-day weekend. Great times, though, had by all, uh, both the Strad Strong Tournament as well as uh, at the house. So hopefully you were able to get a little bit of downtime. Hopefully you were able to get a few things done around the house as well. Uh, I know a lot of people had a lot about, little, lot of fun, a little bit of a fun conversation as well uh, over the weekend that I'll get to surrounding games you used to play when you were a kid, particularly in the schoolyard. Did you play the game Jackpot? I sure did. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, a little later on in the program. When it comes to today's program, a whole bunch we're going to get into. We're going to start off talking about Premier Jason Kenney's war room surrounding the environment and the oil sand. Simon Dyer from the Pembina Institute is going to join us to talk more about this. I've, ha- I've had my... I'm happy about it, but I'm also a little reserved about it. I'm, I'm, I've been on the fence kind of about it. We're going to talk to Simon about what the Pembina Institute has to say about it and where we could be going from here when it comes to especially the next few weeks uh, as the legislature gets ready to ramp up its actions. Uh, before I forget, also at 4 o'clock, to, uh, after 4 o'clock today, James Fell, a pretty frequent visitor here on Calgary Today, is going to be back, but he's penned a piece on his blog surrounding travel etiquette, in particular on fl- on flights. And he had what, from an outsider's perspective, would be kind of a funny interaction with a couple of different uh, roommates, but at the same time speaks to a bigger problem that we seem to be having when it comes to, I don't know, just basic human decency and, you know, asking for permission on some things, like, you know, trying to walk by somebody. Ever have that in the movie theater, for example? Somebody just goes, barges right in front of you without asking, hey, can you maybe move or something like that? And, you, and as, as you sitting there get a little bit of a, a a sight that turns into sore eyes? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. We'll get into that uh, after 4 o'clock. After 5 o'clock, Carrie Tate from the Globe Mail is going to join us about uh, to talk about her latest piece about farming and mental health. Certainly an issue that is tough to talk about on the farm, but it's really hit uh, even a, it, it's it's gotten into a topic of conversation beyond just the farming community. And it's actually being talked about on a federal level. So we'll talk about that. And we're going to end the show with a little bit of a positive note. 
a few weeks ago, we were talking to Deb Matiichka about a, an event that she emceed, and she said this one speaker you had me in tears. He was he just brought the positivity out of me. Raul Tapia is going to join us. He's uh, he's talked a lot about it from the Catholic Family Services and the sports he's been given uh, over the last few years as he's dealt with addictions, mental health, all that kind of thing. So we're going to talk uh, with Raul near the end of the show today. Also have a CPO giveaway to get to, but we're going to talk the war room for Alberta's energy industry next here on Calgary Today. All right, let's get right into this one. A lot of talk, a lot of talk has been made lately about this war room to counter the misinformation uh, surrounding the environment and the oil sands here in this province. Joining us now from the Pembina Institute is Executive Director Simon Dyer. Simon, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Reaction to this whole notion that we're going to create this war room in this province to fight the misinformation that is out there about Alberta's oil sands. Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, we'd much prefer the government of Alberta to focus uh, on uh, demonstrating improvements and solutions to oil sands environmental challenges. I I think uh, really the oil sands don't need public relations. They, uh, you know, they need an honest reflection of the environmental management challenges and the policies that have been put in place to address uh, those challenges. Look, I mean, there are many aspects of the, uh, the oil sands that are very well managed in the Canadian oil patch. Does a uh, does a good job for many of those, but the oil sands are are high carbon, amongst the highest carbon in the world, and also there are issues around things like tailings pond management, which really we haven't done a good job cleaning up yet. So, you know, the way to 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 win international acceptance of the oil sands is to continue to improve the lowering emissions and to address things like uh, tailings ponds. So that's uh, that's certainly where Pemmon Institute would say let's focus on working together on those solutions and not, you know not, not take a defensive approach. Recognize that the oil sands. Uh, Reputation has been improving, but it's been it's been improving because the previous government put rules in place that started to address some of these impacts. Didn't the work towards those improvements start even before this provincial or the last provincial government took took office? I mean, I think it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's been a, a a work in progress for about the last fifteen or twenty years. First of all, there was uh, you know concern about these impacts, and then uh, you know, uh, well, in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, it was uh, actually the Stelmac government that introduced the first uh, carbon pricing rules for the oil sands that started to bend the bend the curve on emissions. It really uh, um, ramped up under the previous uh, government, and we saw much stronger uh, rules to address uh, oil sands emissions intensity. We saw, uh, you know, the previous government establish the, you know, the world's largest boreal conservation area, which, which built on work from the previous conservative government uh, too. And uh, yeah, you know, further, you know, I think there was. Uh the world was starting to see that the Alberta government was taking uh, legitimate concerns around the oil sands seriously. And uh, if we're at a point here now where we start seeing uh, rolling back of climate rules and a really sort of uh, aggressive posture rather than w- working on solutions, it-, it could actually backfire. And so, you know, at Pembina, an organization that's always been an advocate for responsible oil sands development, we, you know, you know, the, the way to get uh, make progress on this is to get other people to start saying you're doing a good job and you do that not through public relations you do that through demonstrating performance so that's why we are a bit concerned when we see uh you know statements about uh uh that we're going to start weakening and rolling back environmental uh improvements is something that's not actually in the interest of this industry in the long term there are those who are listening to this right now saying it's the pembina institute they don't want the oil sands to go forward no matter the cost 
They'll invariably also say you're no different than Greenpeace or other groups. And so, of course, you're going to say that a war room isn't the best course of action. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, that's unfortunate. I mean, the the, the environmental community is uh, is a broad uh, mix of uh, organisations which have different tactics and different uh, different approaches. I mean, I, all FEMA can do is uh, point to its record. I can point you to uh, you know reports from uh, 2007 when PEMA was talking about its responsible oil sands development. We've done we've done scorecards. We've worked on solutions. I mean, I can actually look back proudly and say, you know, many of the issues that, uh, you know, the industry brags about today in terms of improvements in, in emissions intensity or, or water use or conservation, these are issues that Pemina raised as issues 10 or 15 years ago. So, I mean, uh, our track record on this is, uh, is clear. This sort of misinformation and the attempt to sort of, uh, you know, put everyone into a, a box either for or against development or black or white. These are, these are, these are gray areas. I mean, Albertans are smart enough to know that there are, there are, the solution, as always, is somewhere in the, somewhere in the middle. And, uh, you know, creating uh, uh, enemies and trying to, you know, polarize this, uh, this debate, this doesn't help industry in the long term. I mean, we've, uh, for the past 15 years, you know, we, 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 we get visit by, visited by uh, academics and investors and uh, even visiting governments looking for facts on the oil sands. And, uh, you know, Pembina's uh, factual uh, research and evidence always stacks up and we always do it in the spirit of we're here to make this industry better. But you don't make this industry better by, uh, you know, First of all, you know, saying that there are no areas to be improved. I mean, most Albertans would recognise that you know the Osans are a work in progress, and we should you know keep working to improve them so we can continue to be proud of the Osans going forward. When it comes to the the notion of responsible development, and that there's that thought process of what more do you want from us, from those who are within the industry, and there's been that notion of hey, Canada's maybe the uh, the easy target for a lot of groups who are opposed to oil sands development. So how do you get over that notion that hey, this country is doing a lot, but maybe it needs to work forward, but it's not necessarily the easy target, or is it the easy target? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'd encourage, uh, you know, your listeners to look around the world. I mean, there's global concern about uh, climate action. There are you know, there is this concern about uh, fossil fuel development and the impacts that fossil fuel development around the world. And as I said, you know, I mean, a recent study from Stanford University. This isn't this isn't uh, this isn't uh, you know environmentalists saying this. This is uh, you know Stanford University saying Canadian oil has uh, you know is the fourth highest carbon content in the world, fourth, fourth out of you know sixty oil producing countries. Now, obviously, you know there are legitimate issues that we need to uh, address here. Canada's uh, you know is not on track to meet its in national reductions to reduce emissions and the uh, unfortunately with the you know the oil sands as the fastest growing source of greenhouse gas pollution in the country you know there there is a, a is a contribution to that. There are countries around the world that are reducing their emissions. Canada currently is not reducing its emissions. So the solution is to demonstrate that we're making progress across our economy. It's not, uh, no one is picking on the oil and gas sector, but we have to acknowledge that there is still progress that needs to be made by our oil and gas sector. And uh, as the world, uh, you know, there are some projections that we could be uh, looking at uh, peak oil demand in less than, uh, in less than 10 years. And if that's the case, the oil that's going to be used in the future, and we're going to continue to use oil, of course, around the world, but there's going to be a competition for the use of that oil, and the cleanest oil is going to prosper. So 
by, by continuing to make our, uh, our oil as low carbon as possible, we're actually helping it prosper in the future over the de- in, in the coming decades. So, so again, it's, uh, you know, cleaning up the oil sands and continuing to make environmental uh, improvements is actually, uh, you know, as a competitive advantage for this industry. And that's, uh, that's why Pemina continues to work with, uh, you know, the, the energy sector in Calgary. And we're, you know, we're proud to continue to work in the middle here going, going forward. Do you believe that there is a competitive advantage? Because you look at the co- the sheer cost seems to be the big thing, right? And, and you look at, say, other parts of this country are still bringing oil from overseas, despite the fact that it's a little dirtier than uh, Alberta's, for example, but they're getting it at a cheaper discount. So at what point do you go, okay, well, there's a, there's a price differential versus an environmental differential and social license isn't as real as some would make, it, uh, make you believe? Yeah, I mean, a few few points to unpack in there. I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, the oil sands are high cost and high carbon, and part of the the high cost, of course, is uh, is all the energy that comes into extracting it. So actually, by by reducing carbon, you're actually going to lower energy costs as well. So I mean, for the future, that is where the future, you know, the future lies. And a number of uh, companies are making big uh, big strides in reducing the, both the both the cost of production and at the same time the you know the carbon content uh, the emissions associated with that uh, with that uh, energy so i mean absolutely issue about where our oil comes from I and mean, you know all uh, all oil should be you know held to the same uh, same standards and as I, as i said off the top you know there are very there are many areas of environmental management where where, where canadian oil does stack up uh, well but on this issue of carbon and climate change we're still not there uh, yet so going forward reducing emissions is going to you know have to be very important and you're right that you know there is actually uh, uh, a discussion currently about uh, you know uh, where our oil comes from and different political parties the green party you know the Conservative Party have both sort of talked about that uh, about that nationally, but you know we currently have a free trade of uh, energy products, and uh, you know Albertans and Canadians, I think, uh, would probably want that to uh, want that to uh, continue. But uh, you know, going uh, going forward, we're uh, we're convinced that continuing to work uh, on improving environmental management in the oil sands is you know should be the focus because otherwise, uh, you know, from a carbon perspective, we are likely to you know this is a this is a trend that's only increasing globally currently, and uh, you know, no amount of uh, fact checking or you know war rooms is going to address the uh, address the point that we still have a, a carbon issue that we need to address through through the oil sands going forward. And it's something that is being addressed through technology, through investments in uh, uh, new technologies that is, is funded through the existing carbon pricing uh, systems, and that's something we want to see going forward. Simon Dyer from the Pemina Institute joining us now, weighing in on the war room idea. And Simon, the one question I had as we were going to break here was the notion that in this province, we've had four years where this government, the the NDP government didn't seem to be in lockstep and the federal government wasn't in lockstep with energy. And so there is this thought process of why would we revisit anything that the NDP government did over the last four years? And is there anything in your estimation that the UCP is doing right? or should be taking from the NDP? Is there a healthy balance to be hit uh, from all sides here? 
Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, I'd just like to say, of course, I mean, PEMINA is a non-partisan organization, so we work with, uh, you know, governments of all stripes, and we just judge uh, uh, environmental policies on their merits. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, I think what's sort of been lost in this is that, you know, obviously, there's some frustration in Alberta around sort of, the, you know, the debates around pipelines and such, but but absolutely, the uh, the temperature has lowered over the past four years. I mean, the the opposition to pipelines uh, has dropped. The opposition to the oil sands has dropped. I mean, you've obviously see, continue to see some some remnants, some sort of legal uh, challenges that were, you know, filed many years uh, ago, and there are legitimate concerns about Indigenous consultation and this, and this kind of thing. But we have to keep making, uh, have to keep making uh, progress. And so, you know, with this new government, we'd obviously urge them to continue to, to build on the, uh, you know, the platform that was created both by the, you know, the previous uh, PC government and then by the NDP government and then hopefully by this new government. Let's continue to, to go forward and we'll be looking for you know any, 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 any policy annou- announcements. It'll be pretty easy to demonstrate. Does this result in uh, greater emissions reduction? Does it result in continued improvements in uh, technology and uh, performance? Or does it actually sort of uh, you know, remove those signals? And you know, from our point of view, and I think point of view from many in leading industry is that uh, uh, environmental uh, 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 improvements and competitiveness go go hand in hand and we shouldn't be looking at these things as uh, working against each other going forward. Simon, thanks so much for the time today. Do appreciate it. I appreciate the uh, the conversation. Thank you. Simon Dyer over at the Pembina Institute talking about this uh, war room idea. It was thrown out during the uh, provincial election campaign. It'll be interesting to see how it all works and what the end game is with that war room. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. We're going to have a little bit of a healthy, fun conversation. Although if you go to the blog, just be advised that there might be a couple of swear words involved in here. So buyer beware if you go to bodyforwife.com. The subject line to James, one of James Fell's latest is called, To my fellow air travelers, this is why you bleeping suck. And it goes into some of the rationale behind a recent visit to an airport and in particular onto an airplane for James Fell, who joins us now on the program. Thanks so much for the time today, sir. Oh, it's my pleasure. For those who haven't read your blog on this yet, give us a little bit of pretext and context on what exactly your latest flight and what you had to endure well, I've been traveling quite a bit lately because I had a new book come out and, you know, I've been going to Toronto for some national media coverage and giving some presentations. And uh, it was just weird. I'm an ILC guy and I just happened to get there first. And this one guy comes, he comes in and he, he without even asking, he just immediately tries to crawl right, right over top of me. I'm like, excuse me, this isn't the way it works. <laughs> You're supposed to ask me to get up. It's not a problem. I will get up and let you in. And, uh, and so it was just, it was weird that it never happened before. And then the middle seat guy shows up and does exactly the same thing. I'm like, okay, this is crazy. Um, so what I, what I ended up doing, I made a post about it on Facebook because, you know, as a, as an author, I've got a, a pretty big, um, social media following. And I made this post on Facebook asking for people, okay, what is it that you hate? Not about the airlines. We've all heard about the yeah. airline complaints. I want to hear what you hate about your fellow airline passengers. And hundreds of comments loaded. <laughs> were you surprised by that feedback? One and then two was were there any uh, topics that really seemed to uh, take over the the thread at all? 
Okay, so the big ones are um, hygiene is a big one where uh, where people just smell bad and do horrible things like take their their shoes and socks off and put their feet on the armrest of the uh. person in front of them and, and uh, clipping toenails while they're in their feet really? and and just smelling bad and farting and uh, and you know you're you're sharing this this giant metal shared air sick tube for several <laughs> hours and you can't take a shower that day. Come on. And, and so that was a big one. And the other one was the luggage, the carry on luggage mm-hmm. issue was another really big one where it's like, Oh, I don't like to pay to check my baggage. Can you please help me stuff this armoire into an overhead bin? And, uh, and, you know, putting like tons of, tons of bags up top and uh, the person that has a massive backpack and does pirouettes in the middle of the aisle, you know, <laughs> causing concussions of people that are sitting there and, and it, it just, you know, chaos that way. And, and, and that, so yeah, luggage was another big complaint, um, that we came across. And then one of the ones, my, my personal gripe is that I understand that some people due to, you know, mobility issues, mm-hmm. they have to pull on the back of the seat when they're getting up, you know, they, or when they're sitting down, you know, what? you get a pass. That's a, that's okay. Make sure you're not pulling on anybody's hair or something mm-hmm. like that, but that's okay. But then there's some people that don't need to do that. And yet they aggressively, do it. Uh. <laughs> they're yanking on the back of the seat every time. And I've seen people where there's no turbulence at all. And they're walking down the aisle, and they yank on every seat as they go by. Jeez. And and I that's that's one of the ones that that kind of drives me nuts. Um, another one is the um, the the people that don't respect the 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 getting off the plane etiquette of letting you know trying to trying to jump the queue and get mm. like five seconds ahead <laughs> off the plane. And, and that's all it is, is a giant rush. And again, it speaks to, hey, basic human decency around one another. I mean, the, the whole clipping fingernails and toenails thing sets the bar uh, really low on that scheme. But man, oh man, if consideration just would play such a big uh, part in helping everybody's ride just go a little bit smoother. Yeah, and there was one other thing that came up, and that's the issue of traveling with children. And um, there, there's, there is respect for the parent who tries mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of us are parents ourselves and we really, sometimes the kid is just in a mood and you want to shave the head and look for the triple six and stuff <laughs> like that. But, and there's nothing you can do, but the, when you see that the parent is doing everything they can, they're trying to calm the kid down. Most of us are, are pretty understanding. Yeah. It's the parent that doesn't try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Lord of the Flies is taking place in this <laughs> next to them, and they just don't care. Um, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the people who utterly, you can just tell that they despise children. And they see a kid, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you can just see they're bristling. Oh, why do I have to sit next to this kid? And I'm like, you know what? The world is full of children. If you hate them that much, stay home. Yeah. Well, that's no, just it. Like they're, and, and especially when they bristle at a kid that's going to be really well behaved and is like the perfect kid all the way through the ride. 
Yeah, I mean, they might set the kid off because, eh, stranger danger. (laughs) Kids can read your vibes, right? (laughs) It's just amazing. And I mean, that's one of the things that you point out in your piece is that it doesn't really have to be this way at the end of the day. All you need to do is, you know, especially for those who've been flying regularly, you know the protocols, you know what makes other people upset, and you know what upsets you. So why do it back to somebody? Yeah, like don't don't bring the kitchen sink with you in your carry on and take a shower and and be nice. Do those three things, and and everyone will have a much more pleasant experience. Well, and even beyond that, and to go back to your initial points about the the things that you endured going through with the two gents, is uh, all you have to do is have a little bit of communication. At the end of the day, it doesn't really it doesn't have to be that way. All you got to do is say, like you said, excuse me, and you knowing that you have the aisle seat, you know you're going to have to get up a couple of times at the very oh. least. I look at it as an opportunity to stretch my legs. I will happily move. Please don't crawl over top of me. <laughs> I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want a, a rear end or anything else in your face while they're trying to get into their seat. I can't see why that would be a problem, James. <laughs> yeah, if I'm not married to you, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's a great piece. I'll uh, post a link up on my uh, Twitter at Calgary today if you want to check that out. James, thanks so much for uh, sharing the story. People to- Give people the profanity warning. (laughs) (laughs) That is fair, too. Uh, Thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Oh, you're very welcome. It was fun. Done and done. The profanity uh, thing was done earlier on. And so, again, uh, you can go to my Twitter, at Calgary Today. I did just post that. uh, Hit the post, and away you go. Uh, It is, again, viewer discretion is advised to my fellow air travelers. This is why you suck. expletive involved the other one that I, I compare it a lot to if you've ever taken the c train and especially on a busy at a busy time you and you're trying to get onto the train and instead of actually creating a pathway for those who are exiting the train you crowd around the door and then have a standoff between those getting on the train and those getting off the train ow seems kind of counterproductive to me but, you know, basic human decency should prevail at the end of the day. All you got to do is just move out of the way. Be friendly neighbors to one another. And uh, we'll not have to worry about another uh, another blog post quite like that. But it is a fun read if you want to give it a shot. Think back to your childhood. And do you remember games you used to play in the schoolyard or... In the back alley, I mean, like, there's the usual games. I mean, I played a lot of street hockey. I also played a lot of, uh, like, flag football, touch football. But there was one tweeter that was out over the weekend saying, anyone else play 500 growing up? Now, the, the tweeter goes on to say, one player throws a ball, into a, a ball into a group of players standing on the other end of the field, and it's a free-for-all. Whoever catches the ball gets 100 points, and if it hits your glove and you drop it, it's negative 100. And asked, was that game common? And I got thinking about it, went, yeah, I played that game a lot, only we called it jackpot. And the thrower got to call out how much each toss was worth, up to whoever got to 500 first became the, thro- uh, became the thrower. And every so often, the thrower would yell jackpot, and that was basically you get to be the thrower if anyone catches it at all. We went back and forth a little bit, and then I remember there was a part where it was you actually hit a baseball rather than I remember the football portion, but there was also the hitting a baseball into the group. 
and the ball had to be rolling or in the air to count. Alive or dead is what it was. Uh, I remember the the phrasing. So it'd be you throw the ball up, 400 alive, and you hope that you hit it up in the air. If not, it's just a redo. But it got me to thinking, like, what do kids play nowadays? And even beyond that is, what games from your past do you remember playing that maybe don't get played anymore? Text me with some of the answers, 403-974-8255. Before, before actually they go. do that. Oh, oh, Patrick's here. Okay, first of all, I remember 500 too, and so okay. does Gord. It was, it, was yeah. it 500 or was we it jackpot? It, we called it 500. Okay. Hi. So, <laughs> and you want know what kids are playing today? What Far are, too much Fortnite. Ah, yeah, that, that's true. Stupid Fortnite. A story I read with great interest over the last couple of days surrounds Carrie Tate's piece in the latest Globe and Mail showing a 40%, uh, that 40% of Canadian farmers are reluctant to reach out for help in matters of mental health. And I wanted to bring Carrie on to the program now. And Carrie, uh, well, let's fire right into this one here. And why is it that despite the fact that we can call this still a crisis, we still can't really put two and two together here to get the farmers and ranchers the help that they need? few things. Some of it um, is farming is inherently stressful. We, we all live stressful lives. When you look at something like farming, your life literally depends on the weather. It mm-hmm. depends if China's closing a trade market. Right now we're in a trade dispute over canola. Um, pork markets are closed uh, or narrowing in China. And then, but, so you have sort of regular life stress, stresses. You have the increase of farm stresses. You have this stigma of farmers are big and tough and you must persevere and you get through everything. And then you also have geography. Uh, farms tend to be rural and that makes it either difficult to um, get to a larger center or it's also is difficult to just, you know, go for a one o'clock appointment at your doctor. That's you can't do that in farming. If it's raining, um, that's when you go do things. If the sun is shining, you have to work. That part of the the stigma aspect of it really needs to be a big highlight in all of this, just given the fact that, again, it, it kind of can boil down to, hey, you can't go to your neighbor, you can't go to your buddy, you can't mm-hmm. do that, because, again, there's that thought process of, hey, i got to be the tough one, I've got to be the one to, to ride out this wave, because everybody around me is probably wave, riding out that same wave. Absolutely. I mean, there's stigma no matter what profession that you work in. As a society, we're not over that yet. And um, in farming, it is amplified. Uh, And I'm sure it is in plenty of other uh, professions, but it still has that, um, I can do this, I can solve all of these other problems um, tied to farming, so I can just suck this up. And that's how um, crises like this explode. Talk a little bit about the the processes that you're seeing from you mentioned there's you know committee meetings and and mm-hmm. there's there's an actual discussion happening so how ex- uh, to what extent are these conversations actually happening well it happened it's happened really fast recently actually so there was a complete shortage of research until um a researcher out of the University of Guelph wanted to do something and found no stats to work off of so she came up with the stats where they found 58% of farmers um, meet the threshold for anxiety, 35% for depression, 45 have high stress. So once you look at that, and farmers were talking amongst themselves sort of on Twitter, it was starting to come out. What ended up happening is farmers started helping, did their own, they built their own foundation. It's one of the main ones, it's called Do More Ag. It's not the only. And they started 
trying to fund what's called mental health first aid courses. It's just like first aid, you know, if you broke your leg, what you do when you take that course. This is how do you recognize it? So it's starting really small with these really simple things. How do you recognize it in your neighbor? How do you then, um, you know, bring it, talk about it in a sensitive way, how to get them to resources? What do you, you know, if you are a vet, what do you do if you see your client? Um, you know, their animals are struggling and maybe it's because they're struggling. And then um, from the federal level, now that they've gone through the hearings, next week they will present their um, findings and their recommendations of what to do with, on the farmer and mental health crisis. And part of what we can expect, I believe, is to see something like funding for more mental health first aid courses. It's going to be very, very small steps because this is... Um, there's no development in this field yet or no major development, but now that there's attention on it, I think we'll see progress. Do you get the sense at all that there's going to have to be a little bit of um, a bit of a go with the flow mentality to trying to address this issue only because, you know, as you mentioned, it's not like you can set up workshops to work through it on a, you know, Saturday or a Tuesday at one o'clock in the afternoon. Like it almost has to be a, a, a situation where each uh, farmer is going to have to be able to use it to or a rancher going to be able to utilize it on their own power and within their own mm-hmm. uh, schedules versus, hey, here's it's available to you in the big city, even mm-hmm. though that's three hours away. Yeah, yes and no. I think we also, one thing that might help get around that problem that I know some farmers are pushing for um, is something like FaceTime, access to help on FaceTime. And a lot of farmers want um, farmers on the other end, people who might understand, um, you know, their specific problems. And we all want that. We want someone who understands our own situations. Some of it, though, is that their demand is so high. People really are willing to carve time out for this. And we saw that with um, the Do More Ag Foundation um, wanted to fund mental health first aid courses across the country. And they thought they'd get, you know, oh, maybe some people will come, the odd one. They ended up funding 12 courses, but 100 communities in Canada applied. So the demand is there. People are willing to make it happen. Um, We just have to find ways to fund it and uh, give it to them. Globe and Mail reporter Carrie Tate joining us on Calgary today, talking about her latest piece, talking about 40% of Canadian farmers not overly willing to reach out to help for mental health issues. So check that out. I've uh, posted a link on my Twitter at Calgary today. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, our own Deb Matiichka joined us for a regular check-in, and she said that she was the MC for the Up Foundation's gala, which raised uh, well over a quarter million dollars. I think it was like $350,000. And she said that she was moved deeply by their guest speaker. And I thought, well, who is this guy? And so we played some back and forth and found out his name is Raul Tapia. And he's from Calgary and shared his story about addiction and frustration and thoughts of suicide and his second chance. And I thought, what a great opportunity to have him on our program. So, Raul, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When did life change for you? When did things go from I'm this happy-go-lucky kid to uh, down the the spiral that you have outlined so often in in your speeches and in your discussions that you uh, were so applauded for just a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, uh, it's just 
uh, I guess it was a series of unfortunate events. I had just broken up at that time with my high school sweetheart, and uh, I felt really torn up. I met somebody. We had a, a child after nine months. I had had different goals at that moment to have become a cook and whatnot. Unfortunately, uh, I was unable to kind of head abroad just due to the fact that uh, she was pregnant. So, I mean, the, the right thing to do was to be here for my son. And uh, I toughed it out. Uh, that unfortunate relationship did not go well. And uh, so on and so forth. I mean, I just from there on started feeling unhappy about myself, unhappy with where I was in life. My goals were now not where they were supposed to be or at least where I wanted them to be. And uh, I found myself uh, into the dark, dark world of drugs and addictions. So that's where it all pretty much started spiraling downhill. At your lowest point, describe what a typical day in the life was like for you. Well, to be quite honest, it was uh, chasing, I guess. I mean, the one thing I always had on me was uh, I was a good worker and I still am to the day, but I would miss work because I was either too high on cocaine and then just kept drinking and it fueled me. And it's at my lowest point, and I actually did a special with uh, a video that we did for CFS there, and it was at the park here uh, by the zoo. I'd walk through there with copious amounts of drugs and booze and just kind of mingle, I guess, with the vagrants in that area as well, so the homeless people. So I felt included at that point, correct? Mm -hmm. I guess the question then becomes is when did you have that moment of clarity when you went, I can't keep doing this anymore? Well, I started losing a lot of friends. Um, a lot of them were either ODing or just... Uh, just dying just because of lack of their, their health and whatnot. So I'm like, you know what, if my boys, and I have two beautiful boys uh, aged now 10 and 18, they I wanted to give them something to be proud of. And uh, I was not obviously on that track. In this case, I started trying to better myself, trying to get out of those addictions. There was a few relapses here and there. And uh, one of the things that really, really, really hindered me was uh, the lack of education. You see, I wasn't able to finish the school just because I was uh, too focused on working. So... Talk a little bit about that, those relapses and what you learned out of them. I know a lot of people talk about the, the, the need to almost fail once in a while to make you understand how, uh, how, you, how much sweeter the success can be. Well, see, the, one of the things I learned definitely about the relapses was that relapse, the moment that you actually consume or you're back onto your drugs, that's the end of your relapse because it's a big mental process just to get there. I mean, at first you're starting to think, well, where can I, and if I should, should if I do, am I going to miss work? And until that moment that you actually find that little bit of, of coke or whatever it is, it might be that vice, um, that's the moment that the relapse actually hits and that's the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, it's, it's a big one for sure. Who do you credit in terms of getting you over that hump towards the path that you're now on? My family. I really do. Uh, my parents, God bless them, they always uh, tried to help me. And sometimes they actually were enablers, unfortunately, because they loved me so much. Uh, but uh, that drive, that family that I had, that they loved me, they never gave up on me, really gave me that hope. And then, actually, that high school sweetheart I mentioned at the beginning was the one that came back into my life and started showing me that, you know what, maybe this isn't the best way for you. And if you really want me to be in this uh, life of yours... Um, this is, these are the things that we should start considering. And one of them was, of course, losing that addiction. Uh, we're, we're married now, and we started a whole life together. So definitely those, those members did a lot in my family. When you look at what you've accomplished to this point now, and you know you do the, the motivational speeches, and you, do, you talk to different crowds that way, what does it mean to you to try to be able to uh, make a difference in someone's life or to open up someone's eyes? 
Well, one of the biggest things I have found is that there's still a lot of shame. I mean, and that I know will kind of fade out, but there is a bit of shame still there when I sit in a room or even that video was shown. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm glad I'm not where I used to be. And that, that saying really sticks to me because it, it's I'm on my way up and out of here. Uh, I want to help people because I see it. It's so prevalent within our city with, with the times that are changing, with the struggles that everybody's going through. It seems that the only answer is at the bottom of a bottle or at the end of a straw. So. Those are the things that really fuel me. Well, I did want to ask about um, your message to those who are struggling with those addictions, struggling with those issues that we hear about day after day. There's hope. There's always hope. This isn't the end. And uh, oddly enough, I mean, the program that I took, it's called Never Too Late. And that is a big thing in my life right now, that it is never too late. It's not. Uh, The more that you keep going or any kind of opportunity that you get, if as long as you take them, I mean, there, there it is. You know what I mean? It presents itself. Take that next step. I mean, nothing happens unless you take that next step, right? So It's always a, a first step can sometimes be the most difficult, but once you get that step taken, it's the momentum that helps carry you along. Well, that's just it, and that's the problem, and a lot of people don't have this platform, which is, you mentioned earlier, at least some sort of, uh, they can't relate to it with other people. And once you see that other people have gone through it or that are still struggling with it, we find ourselves in different steps or stages of uh, recovery. And uh, you, you see that hope now just kind of break open. Raul, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Very much appreciated. Uh, love hearing those stories of positivity and moving forward with life. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.